So we're going to be in chapter 13 of Hebrews, first six verses. Uh, remember, after the culmination at the end of chapter 12, rehearsing all the, like a summary statement of what, is, what Jesus has accomplished, uh, but then also uh, the, uh, the call for us um, to uh, really heed the warning of not to just defying the word of God, kind of casting it off and, and going on without it. Uh, the writer of Hebrews then turns to what would flow from uh, all the truths of the gospel and uh, what, what uh, actions, what behaviors, what types of uh, things that you know, would ter- be termed obedience would start to flow out of the work of Jesus. So we're in Hebrews chapter 13, uh, starting in verse 1. We're going to look at the first six verses together. Uh, would you stand just as we uh, reflect on what God's calling us to in these verses? Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. God, would you uh, allow these these verses, um, not the most difficult to understand as you state them, uh, God, I pray that the clarity of those things that you've called us to would be, be evident. Uh, Father, that you would help us to see what does it look like for us to be your people? What does it look like for us to know your love? What does it look like for us to be citizens of your kingdom and not the kingdom of this world? God, how would you have us live? How would you uh, call us to reflect your goodness uh, to the world and people around us? Uh, God, give us clarity by the Holy Spirit. Convict us. God, would you draw people to yourself this morning? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. I had a friend who uh, his son actually served in Afghanistan uh, as um, kind of a, a missions organization, but they would go in and uh, set up uh, commerce and and help uh, the people that live in certain countries. And Afghanistan was where his son was sent uh, to basically raise crops and uh, and and help them in different different ways. Uh, in this case, they were help, hoping to uh, replace the poppy. Uh, crops um, that we get our opiates from, or actually ours and around the world, uh, with another cash crop, and um, and that being strawberries. And anyway, it was interesting to be able to go in and give these people hope uh, of of something that would actually be a benefit to people rather than uh, rather than one that was used uh, for such destruction. And um, and so when they were there, they actually devised this uh, this way of actually. Uh, helping people not just uh, grow crops, but also cook. And, uh, and so in the middle of, de- of the desert, how would they go about cooking and boiling water and all these things? And so they came up with this system of kind of the inside of an umbrella, 
um, the inside of an umbrella, so it, it basically makes a, a parabola, and, uh, and they, they put reflective uh, foil on the inside of this, uh, of this umbrella, and it would catch the rays of the sun, and based on how you pointed those different reflective uh, pieces of foil, it would point, and they had all the points point at one center point. Um, and so basically, picture the handle of an umbrella all the reflection pointing at the handle of that umbrella. And they would put a pot of water or whatever they were trying to cook at that point. And it doesn't sound like much, but they could boil water in no time uh, because you collect all the, the rays of the sun and then you point them in one direction and that's how these people would heat water and that, that's how they would actually cook. And it was a great way that, the, um, that my friends and, uh, got into and earned the trust of local people who were struggling uh, with uh, cooking where they didn't have, um, you know, maybe gas or, or other ways to do that. And in thinking of that idea when they would go in and they would collect the, the, the rays of the sun and they would point them in one direction, that really is the picture of what God is saying to us as his people. It's not that go figure out how you go live and you live as good a life as you can and that's how you earn your way into my presence and into my favor. That's not it at all. It is like the rays of the sun coming down on the earth. Jesus, in his grace, bestows his grace, gives us salvation, saves us from our sins. He's the one that does all the work. It comes to us, and we kind of like reflective pieces of foil get to now uh, kind of reflect and show uh, Jesus' love to people around us, just like uh, my friends were harnessing the rays of the sun and pointing them in a direction. That's the move for us. And so if you're a person that I've heard uh, that, that just tell me what to do, you know, you get frustrated at times with me as a preacher, just tell me what to do, Keith, okay? This, is, this sermon is for you, but please don't miss the beginning of this. The beginning of the sermon is the first 12 chapters of Hebrews. The beginning of the sermon is is that it is God who does the work. It is God who shows us grace. It is God who is the one who is the active agent in our salvation. And then all of our doing is a reflection of his grace. It is it, God gives and it gets reflected back out from his people. And so if you are naturally a doer, you can't miss the first part. Or else you're doing out of some motive that really isn't gospel. I'm going to live rightly so that my life works out. That's about you, not God. I'm going to do this, well, because I'm a dutiful Christian. Well, that really could be about God, but probably more often it's about you saying you did what you should have done, and you look at my record, and I've... A lot of times our doing can easily become about us and not about God. And so when we look at a passage like this one, that every verse is like rapid fire, something for us to do, we have to remember this is coming on the heels of the gospel. You know, Jesus loved us. Jesus is the one who loves first so that we can love. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. Who goes first? Jesus. And ours reflects that. And, and it cannot be another way because how else would we have any kind of, uh, any love to really give in and of 
ourselves. So it's a reflection of Christ's love for us. And so this reflection is the first thing that we're going to look at. It's the mark of the work of God. It's the mark of God's love for his people. And, and verse 1 says, let brotherly love continue. Okay? Brotherly love. It's the word that we get our word for Philadelphia, you know, the city of brotherly love. Uh, there's different types of love that are described in the Greek language. Agape is the one we always talk about. It's the unconditional love that is shown like a, like a, uh, a, son, a father to a son, our God towards us. It's unconditional. That's not what this is. This is philo. This is the, the word for brotherly affection. Uh, it's that idea of how a best friend would love, uh, love somebody. It's that sense of deep commitment, um, but it's not necessarily agape, and it's not romantic love either. It is uh, that of a brotherly love. And so let brotherly love continue. Um, and what's interesting uh, is in this, it's not simply... Um, uh, just, you know, hey, why don't you start that? But it's something that's already going that we're called to continue to do. So let brotherly love continue. Let's keep on in that sense of loving. Uh, and quite honestly, it could be a costly thing. And so uh, why would we show brotherly love to each other? The first 12 chapters of Hebrews. Why? Because Jesus showed love to us, therefore, we would love each other. That's not the most profound point, but it is definitely biblical. Is your life characterized by a brotherly affection for people around you? And if it's not, it, the, the, the point is not to go out and get more brotherly love. The point is understand the love that Jesus showed you so that that can develop might be a repentance to build your faith to then see action flow out of it uh and so um so what does this sense of uh reflecting even the even the sense of brotherly love what does it look like well uh, the writer of hebrews lays out two different ways uh that this immediately shows itself uh and that is the extending of the welcome of jesus and uh, so verse 2 kind of lays it out pretty clearly. Um, do, not ne- do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Unawares, that's a funny way of saying that you, uh, we would never talk like that, but that we were unaware in, uh, in, in our doing and what we were actually doing in behalf of uh, in behalf of God, and maybe some have even entertained and were hospitable to angels. So show hospitality to strangers. So in the ancient day, uh, people would travel all over the place, and you know they didn't have their smart bo- smartphones, so they could just you know go on Airbnb and book themselves a room and and all that. And quite honestly, hotels and and, and places and inns in that day were very dangerous. So even if you were traveling, you weren't looking to stay in an inn. You weren't looking to stay in some sort of kind of uh, hotel. You were looking to stay in someone's home because that was much safer. So then you pretend that you're going to a town that you don't know anybody. 
So now, you know you have to go there, but you don't know anybody, so you automatically are in a situation where uh, it could be quite dangerous. And so what do strangers need when they're traveling? They need a safe place, and they need a welcome. You know, they're alone, they're by themselves, or at least just their family. Uh, Oftentimes, they need somewhere safe. And so the welcome we extend... The welcome that the the book of Hebrews is calling is the welcome that has been extended to us by Jesus. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were his enemies, it says in chapter 5 of Romans, and now we are brought near to the table. So we were the ones outside. We were the ones, in, in a sense, the enemies of God. Now we sit like friends at the table. That's the welcome of Jesus. A love for other people flows from his love us now think about that if you're going to take in a stranger um and in antiquity you know it's not like you were going to charge and rent out a room that's not how that worked to take somebody in you took them in and uh you you fed them you gave them a place to sleep you actually welcomed them into your home it was a costly thing to love like this and isn't love always costly You know, that in order to truly love, you've got to give something up. Love is always sacrificial, not simply in the in the agape world of unconditional love, but even brotherly love, you're going to lose something. It's always in exchange, as we looked at. So a costly thing, really much like the gospel, that God sends his son Jesus to the cross. And so this idea of welcome, welcoming uh, the stranger, it's really interesting. And, and, and so uh, many people have written on that from the church perspective. What should God's people be? Uh, we should be a welcoming people. But it's interesting to hear when people outside the church comment on the church. And the usual comment is, uh, the church isn't doing a great job. But I was reading, and there's, there was a, a, an, a, a well-known atheist um, named Sanderson Jones. And he was in London, and, uh, and he was just going around, and, and he figured he would go to churches just to you know, kind of scope the places out. And, uh, and he said this. He said, I think churches should recognize that they are already doing so much right. Hey, that's amazing, right? Referring to the idea that, that having people welcome people at the front door, engaging people as they walk in, people knowing you know, where, where people should go and, and how to do things. He goes, I went to the American Humanist Association. That's kind of his church. And, uh, and they had a special lecture on why it's important to be welcoming. It's just the most basic things that, which you'll take for granted. And in church land... <laughs> His word, not mine. Uh, Those things are very powerful. The welcome of Christ was powerful enough to get the attention of an atheist that said, wait a second, this is not normal. This is not the way people greet strangers. Uh, And so there has to be something that, uh, that God is doing in his people to give us this kind of Uh, love for people. So welcome. People just need to be loved. People are lonely. Um, You know, recently over in Belgium, uh, hotels started, 
I don't even know how to say it. It's kind of funny. But they, they gave the people the option to rent a fish for the night. Exactly. Uh, and they could, they could basically, you know, you're traveling, you're by yourself, you're lonely. You could rent a fishbowl. And they would bring a fish to your room, and you could have a companion, you know, somebody to talk to, somebody to feed. I, and and the, the, I, I laughed. It's real. Uh, and, uh, and so the manager said, yeah, you know, we came up with this idea, and we rent at least a few fish per week. People are looking for companionship. If we're going to rent a fish to hang out with, uh, you know, and whatever. Uh, even if it was a dog, I could get that, but a fish. But, uh, and, you know, it basically, uh, Business Insider wrote on this, and they said, perhaps fish aren't the best cuddlers, <laughs> but it's nice to have a friend nearby when you're in a new place. So the welcome that God's people can extend ought to go beyond that of a fish, okay? I'm not setting the bar very high. You know, uh, we, honestly, if, if Jesus would welcome us while we were his enemies, what does the welcome of God's people to others look like? So next time you go out through those doors, not today because we're going to run through that room and go to our cars to the groundbreaking, but next time you're out there mingling, Maybe think, what might be brotherly? What might be loving? What might be extending the welcome of Jesus? You know, what's great is we have really good friends in this room. What's great is that those bonds are deep. But what about the person that might not have that deep connection with somebody? What would it look like for you to say, you know what? I'm going to cost myself a few minutes with my best friends. Because love is always costly. This might not be the most costly thing. And I'm going to walk across the room and welcome and engage and, and, uh, and inquire of somebody else uh, that may not have that deep connection. That is the low scale of what welcome looks like. And then I think, you know, the, the fullest extent is welcoming people into your home. You know, when's the last time you've had somebody else in your house? For no other reason than to just be together. Could be watching a game. It could be uh, having a meal together, have a cup of coffee. When's the last time you've welcomed somebody into your life? That's the welcome of Jesus. He welcomes us to him so that we can show his love to people around us. So then we get to this sense. It, it's, it feels like, um, like it's almost a, a deviation from that, but uh, if you... If you take the idea of a stranger needing something, then verse 3 starts to make sense. Verse 3 being, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated so that you are also, uh, because you also are in the body. Basically that we would suffer with those who suffer. So it's not simply that we'd welcome people in, but when somebody in the body hurts, we all hurt. When, when uh, Jean Gallagher goes to be with her sister who has uh, terminal cancer and, and, uh, and we're, we're all praying with her. Why? Because when she is grieving, we grieve with her. We long to see God at work uh, in her sister's life 
just as much as she does. You know, so remembering those, we remember those who are in prison. We remember those who are mistreated. And that, if you think about it, remembering is not simply, oh yeah, I, I call that to mind. Remembering somebody in these terms is to bring about an empathy, uh, an action-oriented remembering, not just, oh yeah, that's neat, um, it's in my head now, but this sense where there is a remembering that brings us to act. And so remember those who are, who are in prison, remember those who are mistreated. But here's a phrase in here that is, can be easily mistaken, okay? Why do we do that at the end of verse 3? Since you also are in the body, that is not talking about the church, the body of Christ. That's, it's basically since you know what it is to be, you know, flesh and bone, right? To, to hurt, to, to walk, to, to be hungry. Since you're a human being in the flesh, you're in the body, Relate to those who are in prison. Relate to those who are mistreated. Uh, and, um, and how do you do that? As though you suffer with them. You take on each other's burdens. So next month, um, and we do this every year, the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. We don't suffer persecution very often in our country. Um, but all over the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ are in prison, they're being beaten, they're being, uh, their homes are being burned, they're losing all their, their earthly possessions. At times, they're separated from their family. They're being killed for their faith. What is it for us to remember them to the point that we would continue to pray for them and even see what needs they might need uh, from us here in a, a land of abundance and a place where we can worship freely when one part of the body suffers the whole body suffers first corinthians 12 and so that we suffer with those who suffer why would we do that because that's the love that jesus shows us he suffers so that we might be healed so that we would feel uh, what other people are going to going through so we reflect the love of christ and how he's shown it to us but then it starts to get really interesting so then it's not just reflect the love of, of Jesus to other people, but then it's also trust how Jesus arranges your life, okay? The mark of Jesus' love for us is that we start to value what he values. We, like, we start to love what he does. We start to really trust the way that he arranges things. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands, Obedience matters, especially in context of grace. Some people think grace or obedience. The Bible does not. It's grace and obedience. Some people say, oh, my obedience is what earns me favor. That's not scriptural. It is God shows us his favor through his grace, and then we, show, we reflect that in actual obedience to what he calls us to do. Our heart is changed, and so we can obey. And so there's this trusting of what Jesus is doing. And the first one is in verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. 
in Genesis, uh, and basically the call that we would honor marriage as he has established it. That Jesus is the one who is establishing marriage. Uh, Therefore, Genesis 2 would say, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and he will hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And so what's in this passage um, if you're, uh, is both words that deal with sin in the sexual realm. So the end of verse 4, there is sexually immoral is one phrase, and adulterous is another. There are two different words in the Greek. The first one, sexually immoral, is pornos, which we get our word pornography. Uh, the, any general term that takes sex the way God has established it, and misuses it in any way, shape, or form would apply in the sense of sexual immorality. Any idea of of sexuality outside of the way God has made it very good. This is not shameful to talk about. This is God saying this is good, but it's for a man and a woman to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. Enjoying sexuality outside of that is what would be defined by that word sexually immoral. But then the idea of adulteress is a different Greek word. It's the word that um, refers to someone who is, who is married, who is unfaithful to their spouse. And so uh, it, th- this pretty much covers the full span of what relates to sexual sin. And so why would we honor the marriage bed? Why is that so important? Especially in a culture that, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, you probably have just in just walking around and and figuring this out, that back in the year 2000, the number of like uh, kind of young adults, say 25 to 35, that were married compared to uh, never been married, it was like 55% were married, about uh, 35 or 40% were never married or had had not been married um, uh, before. 19 years later, that has flipped. Okay, now 55% have never been married and only 35 to 40% have. So in 20 years, the view of marriage as an essential part of our culture but not just our culture, but of life, as God has established it, that has moved greatly. And so uh, it, it's not held in high honor. And so as a result, the sexual ethic is now more determined by, um, more determined by people's desire rather than what God has established. And you can see that in culture. And quite honestly, I think we can probably see that in the way that we struggle with sexual temptation even in our own hearts. So let's not just put it off uh, against the world. And so there's this, uh, this warning that comes in, in many different passages that it is possible for God's people to fall into uh, great sexual immorality. And God is calling his people back. And so here's the thing. Usually sexual immorality does not start in its full measure. It begins very discreetly. And I think God is calling his people 
to say, deal with the sin that resides in your heart while it is not full grown, not at its full measure. So where is God maybe convicting you of right now? Would you by faith, if you were God's son or God's daughter, would you by faith trust him enough to bring that sin into the light? Because that's the sin that resides in secrets, right? That's the thing that grows in secret. And, and we would say that the sexual morality is the biggest danger. I would say the secret is the biggest danger. So what are the secrets in your heart that maybe even the person right next to you doesn't know? And is God, by his spirit, saying, bring those things into the light so that I might heal and restore? Because those pictures of God's restoration are the greatest stories of the church. It's not that we have resisted all temptation and we never fall into it. The greatest stories of the church is when we boldly trust Jesus enough to bring our garbage before him so that he might heal and redeem and restore. That's the stuff of goosebumps. That's the stuff where Jesus and his renown is played out. That marriage is that we would honor marriage in such a way that we would boldly trust Jesus. And so Ray Ortland, um, in, in his book on, uh, on sexuality, he was talking about God's design and, and our misuse of sex. And he starts talking about two different groups of people. So conservatives and liberals, um, he kind of took the easy road in describing these camps and you know conservative people uh love and really emphasize the idea of form restraint and control in this area of sexuality progressives or uh would say you know what we need to emphasize freedom and openness and choice right does that kind of clearly depict some of the disconnect in our culture you know control uh, on one hand, uh, and, or freedom on the other. And, uh, but wisdom, biblical wisdom, he says, teaches both of those things. It's not one or the other. It is both. Uh, and he says a marriage can flourish within both control and freedom. Because sex is like a fire. In a fireplace, it keeps us warm. Outside the fireplace, it burns down the house. Here's the message of the Bible. Keep the fire within the marital fireplace and stoke that fire as hot as you can. Did he just say that? Yes. And it is to God's glory. This is not shameful. But yet we don't talk about sexuality And I think the world has more of a comment on sexuality than God's people. And that is a sad day. I I wonder if the people in, in churches are just as confused as the world. And then, uh, so honor marriage as he's established it. So God sets it up. We get to honor him. When we find ourselves outside, it is God's call to come back so that he might restore and heal. It's not uh, the nail in the coffin that maybe uh, many of us have grown up in in the purity culture of churches. It is the sense where God is saying, honor me. 
But then it's also the idea of being content with God's provision for you. Look at verse, uh, the first part of five. Um, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Okay, honoring marriage is really about contentment, contentment with how God, uh, the spouse he's brought you, the timing of, of how he has, or maybe you're single and you're waiting. It's contentment over what God's done. But why can we be content, not just in marriage, but in anything? Why can we be content uh, with what we have and be free from a love of money? Is the second half of five and into six. You'll be content with what you have, For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can say confidently, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So his presence is the answer to you and I, uh, or, or to you and me, in the sense of why would we be content with the financial situation that God has given is because God says, I'll never leave you. His presence is the answer. He will be my help. That it, It frees us from anxiety because Jesus has arranged your life. He's arranged my life. The living God has oriented things for you and me. And what do we want to do? We want to take matters into our own hands. We want to be God. We want the reins back of our life. We want to rearrange things ourselves. And so this is a quote from Psalm 118. I submit to you the context. It's amazing because it talks about the steadfast love of God. And it has God's people in threefold ways saying and praising him for his steadfast love. And it endures forever. The Lord's on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And I think in context, that goes well beyond financial provision, right? Especially people that were in prison, suffering under uh, consequences of a rule that's uh, against uh, the word. What would make us content, people, is that we actually believe the Lord is our helper, that I have no good thing apart from him. Again, why would we be content with that? The first 12 books of Hebrews. Because he has gone to such great lengths to bring us into his family. He has sacrificed his own son for your sin and mine so that we might be sons and daughters of the living God. Would he go to that length just to give us garbage and let us suffer needlessly of course not if he went at Romans 8 if he would go to the place of giving his own son how much more will he give us and that's the goodness of God we sometimes think you know what I'm going to define his arrangement of my life differently than 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 he would but how do you trust the love of God that is shown in your life and how do I trust him in the way he has arranged mine? Or are you one that's kind of bumping up against, bumping up against what he has established and how he's established your life? If you are, he's calling you back. It's a place of repentance. And let this table, when we get there, be a time where we repent of the ways that we want to live on our terms and let his grace and his blood cover us so that we might be restored. Let's pray.
God, take your word. I pray that it would uh, really feed us, uh, that you would challenge us. Uh, Father, uh, these, these types of rapid-fire behavior passages, God, I pray that we wouldn't miss them or just take them as nice ways to fix our life up. God, these are reflections of your love for us. These are reflections of us being in your kingdom. God, I pray that you would uh, change our heart. Would we trust you more than what we want? Would we trust you more than how we would arrange our life? God, thank you that you are good to us. Help us to show that welcome and that goodness to people around us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.